0: Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host Bob Clark. As always, any of the opinions that are offered on this show are not those of Howard County Community College faculty, staff, or employees. And also, we are not attempting to give legal advice on this show. If you have an individual legal problem, please make sure you contact an attorney and acquaint them with all of the facts of your case so you can get the best advice possible. Today on the show, we have a rare opportunity. We have a judge from the highest court of the state of Maryland, the Court of Appeals, Judge Michelle Hotton. Welcome to the show, Judge Hotton. Thank you very much. I have known Judge Hotton for too many years for me to say, or it would age me a little bit. Um, (laughs) But she's had a fascinating career having worked... As a private attorney and as a governmental attorney and as a judge in various different ways, shapes, and forms, if you could just give us sort of a brief summary of your career and then maybe we'll pick a little bit at it.
1: Okay. Prosecutor, private practitioner, sole practitioner, and have sat on every level of the judiciary.
0: Which is an unusual thing, I think. Now, you cross paths with other judges. How many have sat on so many different levels and could you describe specifically what the levels were?
1: I think there are a total of 5 of us okay. who have sat on every level.
0: That's just astonishing, really. Did you know that you wanted to get into this line of work long ago or is this something that just came to you?
1: Nope. I wanted to own a candy store when I was 6.
0: <laughs> and how'd that go?
1: Not too well. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> what
0: inspired you to become a lawyer? Perry Mason. OK, it's, you know, we <laughs> recently had a judge from the circuit court for Prince George's County on Sharon Kelsey. I know you're acquainted with Sharon and her inspiration was also Perry Mason, which is fascinating. I wonder if there is a, a contemporary analog to that that these days makes people. I mean, maybe the the protagonists like Jerry Buting and making a murderer or the people like that. But I don't know that there's a fictional character that people turn to anymore.
1: Now I'm trying to know. Now I can't think of one.
0: I wonder what inspires people to become lawyers. I'll have to have some younger people on and ask them. <laughs> you are on the highest court in the state of Maryland. Did you ever think that that is something that you would attain? Absolutely not. Okay. How did you go about getting on the highest court in the state of Maryland?
1: A lot of prayer. Okay. A lot of hard work garnering support. Sure. A lot of reading.
0: Okay. Okay
1: and basically each time I met with individuals preparing why I wanted to do it and who I really was as a lawyer and a judge.
0: You know, in, in our pre-show discussion, that was one of the things that you mentioned, that sometimes people don't going you know, to really reach for their full potential and do all they can with themselves. And it sounds as though you had to grapple with that yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and how did you overcome whatever sort of restrictions you were placing on yourself?
1: A lot of soul searching, a lot of grappling with fear. Okay. What is the fear? There was an attorney who taught me that fear meant false evidence acting real. And i thought about that a little bit. I like that one. And I said, okay, what's, what's the worst that could happen? Okay, you could die. But is that the end? No, you could go to heaven. So once you start thinking of it in very simplistic terms, and recognizing how it limits your ability to be your best self and to serve others, then it's almost
0: liberating. One of the things that we routinely attempt to do with all of our guests is try and send a message to the students who are the predominant audience for this. And that fear is is a good one. And the idea that, you know, what's the worst that can happen if I reach for the stars seems like it's, it's a pretty good message. Have you found it rewarding to be on the Court of Appeals?
1: Extremely rewarding because we are looking at potential sea changes in the law. We're looking in hindsight at precedent and what did it really mean? What should it mean now? What would be the best message to the legal community in terms of statutes, regulations, rules? What's really behind them? How should they best be implemented? How should trial judges examine them and be the best at who they
0: are? so i'd like to get a little bit into the process because i presume that there's a good deal of discussion with your colleagues about what direction they think things should go so the process essentially for the purposes of our audience this is the equivalent of the supreme court of the state of maryland a lot of a lot of states have a supreme court in maryland you have the court of special appeals and then above it is the court of appeals correct yes and before a case ever reaches the court of appeals except in rare instances, it's argued and decided by the Court of Special Appeals, and then a participant in that then has to ask the Court of Appeals for permission to yes. even argue the case. Yes. And that's a petition for writ of certiorari, correct? Yes, yes. And so how what's the process of considering certiorari, if you can give us a sense of it?
1: We individually review cert petitions every month. We... Examine one, two, sometimes three boxes of cert petitions individually. Oh, my. We then prepare our suggestions or recommendations. And then at conference, we discuss them, and it takes three to grant. Okay. And then, presumably, it's either set on a docket in the future or not.
0: So is there a benchmark for deciding when cert should be granted, other than the three people think so?
1: If it's something that's in the public interest, what is very interesting is when the Court of Special Appeals has what I call a splintered decision or vote, then we know that there is some confusion possibly regarding uh, where we should go, the direction we should go in terms of the law, Uh, if it's a novel or interesting issue that we have never considered before if there's something that's happening nationally in the courts and we think, okay, maybe we should take a look at that.
0: So how often, and this may not be something you've thought about much before, but when you describe a splinter decision, I would presume that means that there's a dissent or concurrences that are at odds. Yes. And a dissent is when a judge is not in the majority but doesn't think things should have gone the way the majority did, correct? Correct, correct. Do you find that splintered decisions in the Court of Special Appeals tend to yield splintered decisions in the Court of Appeals?
1: I haven't done any research okay. in that regard, got so I'm something not new really for you. sure. Yeah. yeah, I'll have
0: to look into that. So, what percentage of cases in the Court of Appeals end up with dissents in them? Do you think?
1: Don't know about that. Okay, I'm getting some new okay. things out there. But I think, yeah. But I think the Daily Record. Uh, there was an article maybe two or three years ago when Judge Getty. Yeah first joined and you know it, it's, it's kind of surprising it's like oh wow Judge Getty and I apparently had dissented maybe six times or you know I hadn't thought about it in that regard
2: when you dissent, do the other judges try and persuade you perhaps to their point of view? Or in other words, are you, are they aware of your position and do the judges talk about, why perhaps they should persuade another judge to change their mind?
1: They may be aware of it when we take the preliminary vote, but it's just that. That's a preliminary vote. I always like to examine what the majority opinion might be, and then that kind of solidifies whether or not I'm going to tender a dissent. Sometimes I'll get questions. It wouldn't be like, don't you want to go this way? You know, Every once in a while it might be, you'll, you're going to be all alone, and that's well, okay. We it came it, into the world it's <laughs> <laughs> alone.
2: Yeah. I'm sure there's great camaraderie. I just find it interesting the way the dissents sometimes come out.
1: Sometimes it's surprising.
0: Yes. I had a question recently for Judge Battaglia, formerly of the Court mm-hmm, of Appeals, who mm-hmm. has been a guest regularly here. And I asked her, and I think I also asked this of some Fourth Circuit judges that we were before last fall, how often oral argument? sways the judges and I wonder what your experience is with that.
1: I find it to be very very helpful because once we've reviewed the briefs and we've looked at the record extract and we've looked at maybe some past case law, some legislation, some history, you have a preliminary idea of what the state of the law is right now but then I'm always intrigued by what is it that you're going to present during oral argument and I think the best oral advocates are those that are focused on persuading us and they're looking at us in the eye and they're not using notes and they're not rehashing what I've already spent many hours reading. They're concentrating on one or two very important points They recognize that they don't have 20 or 30 minutes to just talk ad nauseum, that we're going to come at them with some questions, and in order for them to focus on the questions, they can't be wedded to the notes. So those are the best advocates in in my estimation.
0: Do you discuss in advance with your colleagues questions you might hypothetically ask the advocates? No. Do you find that you're sitting there and you're about to say something and one of your colleagues suddenly asked the exact question you were thinking? Yes. Of? See, that's a wonderful thing. I hated thing. Judge
1: Battaglia for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell her that. Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: that's, that's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. guess people do kind of have the same things that trouble them about making yes. a decision one yes. way or the other. Yes. So, you have recently written several exceedingly interesting dissents, and I don't want to get into them in too great detail, but there's one in particular in a case called In Re SK, which involved a 16 year old girl sexting her friends. And ultimately, the way I read the decision, it was concluded that she was sort of violating child pornography laws by sending a sex to two of her friends in private while she was engaged in a sex act that technically wasn't illegal under Maryland law. Is that a fair synopsis
1: of it? An argument could be made. Okay,
0: okay. (laughs) I, I just was intrigued because the majority seemed to embrace this juvenile prosecution, and you felt that it had failed on both the elements of it, and most specifically, the law that applied to this conduct didn't appear to proscribe what she did. In other words, when the law was written by the legislature, they had not said you can't sext. In effect, they'd said you can't send videotapes, video discs, all this sort of thing. And one sort of feels that it's hard to be constitutionally protected if your conduct actually isn't explicitly illegal. Is that an apt description of that situation? Yes, yes. And it also had sort of an ironic twist in that the conduct that this legislation exists to protect is to protect the minor from being exploited, presumably by adults for the most part. And in this instance, no adult was exploiting this individual. True. It had been published in private to her friends, and they subsequently showed it to a school resource official who brought this thing all to a head. Yes. I just, it's its a very puzzling result, and it was one that led me to think there will be all manner of other kind of analogous cases that could really cause problems if we're allowed to just say, well, it, this isn't in the law, but you know, we're going to say it's covered by the law somehow. How often do things like that arise in the Court
2: of Appeals?
1: Not too often since I've been there. Okay. Uh, but one of the beauties of having seven people coming together on a bench with different experiences is that you are often coming to a particular issue from that perspective. To have been the coordinating judge for the juvenile division and having juveniles before me and examining, regardless of technology or how things uh, develop socially. I mean, I'm just going to speak for myself sure, in the sure. room. You know, I grew up without cell phone, computer. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, it just wasn't, it wasn't bombarding me the way it's bombarding other young people. And young people having access to social media where they can instantly place a thought, a reaction to something, an emotion without thinking and placing it in context. When I examined this case, that experience came to bear. And I wondered, if I were in in the place of that juvenile judge, how would I perceive this? How would I consider the rehabilitation and treatment that I think is necessary when juveniles come to court? what are we attempting to do in that regard and are you are we trying to put a square peg in a round hole so to speak as opposed to indicating or acknowledging the conduct does not fit the parameters of the charge or the delinquent conduct so what do I do what ultimately is the role of an appellate judge in examining that because when I'm looking at when I looked at that particular statute it just I couldn't fathom that the General Assembly intended it to apply to this particular conduct it just didn't make sense and then when you realize that okay maybe something needs to be changed I can't legislate from the bench I can't do anything about that But there is an entity that can, but they can't unless perhaps another voice says something's not right here and here's why. And then maybe someone can attach to that and say, you know what, that's right. That's not absolutely right. Let's let's change that. Let's adjust that.
0: Well, I mean, the legislature did undertake it, although did not pass any legislation. So it does seem sort of a recognition that this wasn't covered and that maybe things need to be covered and rethought and new laws that are you know, in keeping with what's going on in the modern right. age come into being, but that right. still doesn't make something illegal that is not specifically listed. Right, right. You, you used one interesting phrase that you sort of hear in political world, and that is legislating from the bench. <laughs> and of course, there's this widespread view if an opinion comes out that isn't one that's in harmony with your own beliefs, that people are legislating from the bench. And uh, I wondered how often you feel that people legislate from the bench.
1: Fortunately, in Maryland,
0: not often. Okay, I, I, that was my opinion. Thank generally, yeah. I don't yeah. always agree with every appellate opinion. Please excuse me in that regard. But no I don't offense. feel like that, I don't <laughs> feel you. like that's there. That that's what's going on for the most part. Um, in that light, I, I another case that has crossed your path again in dissent, is is a fairly famous case. And we're going to have one of the attorneys on from that case. And and that's the Adnan Syed case uh, for the audience who's familiar with the podcast serial, which gained a great deal of attention. Uh, The Court of Appeals had occasion to decide whether the failure of Adnan's attorney to call a prime exculpatory witness was ineffective assistance of counsel. And I'll just clarify that Pretty much any time someone is convicted and then they take an appeal and they switch attorneys, they feel duty bound to blame their prior attorney. And I I, one of our guests here has been Jerry Buting for making a murderer. And of course, after Stephen Avery didn't get off, the new attorneys, you know, (laughs) castigated them, they did such a bad job. And, you know, that was the next season of making a murderer, although that kind of toned down when they realized what a fine job they did. But I have to say the Syed case, that result in the Court of Appeals was amazing to me. And in essence, what was your opinion about that?
1: We were not asked to determine guilt or innocence or the sufficiency of the evidence in that regard. I think rationally, you can examine the record and determine or conclude that defense counsel was deficient in terms of the representation. And so when you say yes to that, and you focus on a piece of evidence, and I'm only going to focus on the one piece because there were other pieces of evidence uh, that if I were a defense counsel, perhaps I would have a different argument or advocacy sure. on behalf of my client. But focusing on the evidence of an individual who believes that not only did they see a person in a place that was not the place of the alleged crime. Sure. Not only did I see him, I spoke to him and it was within the parameters of a certain period of time. And the contention if I recall from the state was that uh, the murder occurred within that period of time. Correct. Well, both of those premises could not be correct. But is it not our system to have a trier of fact resolve that dispute? I think yes. But to say it wouldn't have mattered anyway, no one would believe that, a lot of other things, I don't think that's a function of an appellate court. And so that in part prompted the dissent. So it's not a question of determining whether he was guilty or innocent. I. Do not know. That was not relevant sure. to me. But whether or not that particular testimony could or could not have altered that outcome, the answer is probably yes or no. But let a, let a trier of fact make that decision.
0: It does seem like sort of constitutional entitlement to a trial by jury on all of the most important facts. Correct. And an exculpatory witness so you couldn't have committed Correct. the murder would be one of those. Correct. So I was astonished by the decision when I read it, and I was proud to have known you and have you be in the Um, dissent. One of the questions I often ask people is whether there was any particular figure that you have met or not met who has been inspirational to you other than Perry Mason. Real people? Real people. Real people. I mean, it can be, you know— The president it can be you know a famous you know thurgood marshall is an inspirational figure to me personally that kind of thing
1: thurgood marshall would would be one because history often focuses on brown versus board they don't focus on what led to that the strategy because he had a strategy oh yeah and the selection of The cases and issues was all a part of a strategy, a strategy that, in part, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg adopted.
0: Another person I have vast admiration
1: for. Right, okay, of of handling uh, cases. Um, Judge Sylvania Woods. Uh, Judge Woods, what a nice man. Would be another. Um, When I was in third grade in Washington, D.C., I first met him. He was an attorney. I'd never seen a black attorney before. And I thought, wow, if he can do that, I can do that. And then, you know, because I don't think they're coincidences, then you fast forward and then you appear before this person as a judge. And then he becomes a colleague. And so, just fascinating. Every attorney that appeared before him felt as if they were worth a million dollars. He was a wonderful man. He was a wonderful he was. man. He would, you know, communicate to the client that you you shouldn't do that by yourself. You need an attorney. And then if you had an attorney, your attorney did the greatest job ever I mean, it was just wonderful to watch how he interacted with human beings and extol the virtues of being a lawyer. Um, Bud Marshall, who gave me a job as a prosecutor, I you know I didn't I didn't know anybody, I had no money, there was no influential family, and uh, Judge Alex Williams was a professor of mine at Howard.
2: Sure.
1: Rumored to want to run against Bud. I thought I'll never get this job, and then. I get an opportunity and there were a couple of times that I felt I'm, I'm, I'm not the best and then you would go in and you would talk to him and he would set you straight there was never any yelling or anger in front of anybody if he had something to say it was behind the door and then it's like okay I'm done and you just go you know be the best person you can be um, Judge Missouri, who initially you know, I, I, I talk about fear like, oh my god, I have to be in front of Judge Missouri who expects you to be perfect, expects you to be on time, expects you to have spoken to every single witness, including all police witnesses, you know, but then to to come to a moment in your life when you say, okay. Am I going to hang on to this fear or am I going to tackle it? Am I going to sit down and have a conversation with him? There's obviously something that he sees in me that I don't see in myself. And then when you do the soul searching and you say, you know what? Okay, I'm going to change this. And then he, you become a colleague. And then you end up advising him and telling him how to handle things. I, you know, just, That's a lot of confidence. It's a lot. You know, it just... Wonderful. Um, so do you feel that you have... Tom he- Farrington? I mean, you oh, I all love knew... Tom. Oh, love my Tom goodness. Farrington. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's where I think I met you. Oh. You were working with Tom, and oh. Tom and I had some cases together and had a good mutual respect.
2: Your Honor, if I may add, I brought my daughter to court one day. <laughs> you were on the circuit court around 2007, 2008, 2009. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. She was a journalism major at Maryland and called me and said, Dad, I have an assignment. I have to go to court and see a hearing. And I was so delighted to tell her, well, on Thursday, I'll be appearing before Judge Houghton in a hearing.
0: (laughs) So she came to
2: court. She watched the hearing, which was over an hour long. Before the hearing, she watched you deal with criminal sentencing violations of probation. At the end of the hearing, which my side prevailed in and I was very excited about, she came up to me as bubbly and as excited as possible and said, Dad, Dad, I know what I want to do. And I thought I had impressed her so much. <laughs> and she said, and I said, "Really?" And I was just waiting for her to tell me she wants to be a lawyer. And she says, "I want to do what she does." <laughs> and I said, "What? Who? Who is she?" "I want to be the judge." Wow. And you impressed her beyond belief. She did, did she not go to change law school? Her, she did not change her major. Uh, she finished her journalism degree, okay. but she talked about it for several months after watching you do a docket. Oh,
1: thank you for telling me
2: that. So, when you talk about people that you looked up to my daughter didn't say i want to be like you dad she said i want to be <laughs> like judge houghton she, you made a very good impression on oh, her. You. thank apropos you apropos
0: that, that sharon kelsey <laughs> has this phrase about how you never know who's watching you and it applies to her career and people along the way who took notice of what an extraordinarily capable and wonderful person she was but it sounds as though that affected your daughter alan uh, and probably your You're discussing the people who inspired you and helped you. I have a feeling a lot of them took notice of some things in you that maybe you didn't fully believe in, but have come to accept and empower you. I'm seeing a nodding head meaning amen to that. Affirmative, yes. Affirmative. (laughs) And that's a pretty important thing in life, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a judge, whatever you do, you got to kind of push the boundaries on things a little bit and take some risks and accept constructive criticism because that's always an issue with lawyers and sometimes with judges as
1: well. True. Um,
0: True. But that's kind of what we talk about here routinely and we try and bring in people Who have had significant success despite, as you say, you come from humble origins. You had no connections and you had to kind of fight your way to, I don't mean fight in a literal way, but you know, to prevail on this. And i am just, I'm very proud to number you as a professional friend and have you on the court of appeals writing decisions in the majority. And there were some of them I was going to touch on. There's a fascinating decision about marijuana and the smell of marijuana and whether that's probable cause and all that kind of stuff. But that sounds like that's another day. But it's just been very nice to speak to you today. And I'm hopeful that the message that you're sending out and a lot of our guests have been sending out will kind of take root in the students here at at Howard County Community College.
1: People focus on when they were born and they think that's the day. That's not the day. It's the day when you recognize what my purpose is, what is it that I can do. You mentioned reaching for the stars. That shouldn't be a limit. You set the limit. Don't let other people set the limit. And don't let people tell you that you can't do something. I was told I couldn't be a lawyer. Why don't you think about being a teacher? Why don't you think about being a clerk typist? You know, my typing sucked. Okay? I got, you know, I mean, I can type a little bit okay but you know I had to kind of fake to get some jobs but when you listen to other people you don't recognize your potential and often you don't critically examine the circumstance everybody focuses on the yeses sometimes it's the no's that are positive because if I tell you you can't go through that door it might be a very valid reason why but then is that a window? Well, we'll, we'll pretend. But there's a window there and that might lead to something that's far greater, far better for you than what's behind the door. Everybody focuses on the no and they just kind of accept it. Everybody focuses on, well the Constitution may have some limits. Well, is it really the Constitution that has the limit or the people that are using that document to advocate for the best that this country has and what's the worst that could happen if you advocate
0: on that note i'd like to thank you judge houghton for your appearance on everyday law hope to have you back sometime to talk about the constitution and one of my favorite topics the maryland constitution and declaration (laughs) of rights this has been everyday law i'm your host bob clark farewell
2: connect with us we are dragon digital radio